Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Anne Enright, in conversation with Jane Sullivan, talking about her formidable body of work and her latest novel, Actress. Centred on Irish theatre legend Catherine O'Dell, as told by her daughter Nora, Actress tells of early stardom in Hollywood, of highs and lows under the stages of Dublin and London's West End. Actress is about a daughter's search for the truth, the dark secret in the bright star, and what drove Catherine finally mad. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. I would like to uh, introduce myself. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager of Readings and I am so thrilled to have you all here with us tonight. And I'm particularly thrilled to have Anne Enright, award-winning author, with us chatting with one of our own beloved people, the wonderful Jane Sullivan, who I'm looking forward to introducing. But before I do that, I want us all just to take a little moment out of our busy, busy days, and I want us to just think about that wherever we are in Australia, we're living on land that's not been ceded. We're living in land that's owned by the First Nations people. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and it seems to me that I need to acknowledge my gratitude to these First Nations people. And I need to do that because otherwise living here would be fraught. Living here would make me incredibly closed if I wasn't able to access so many stories and so many song lines and so much history that is in this beautiful country. Without acknowledging our First Nations people, we are bereft I think, of such culture, of such knowledge. They play such an important role in defining who we are and why we are and why we're here in this country together. So on behalf of all of you, wherever you are in Australia, let us all just take a moment and pay our respects to the First Nations elders, past, present and emerging, and also, indeed, give our gratitude. And now, let me introduce one of Reading's great friends, the wonderful Jane Sullivan. Jane's been writing about books for years, for absolute years. She's written columns, she's written about authors, she's reviewed, she's an author herself. Her last book was Storytime. And uh, it's doing very, very well still, even though it came out a couple of years ago. It's one of those books that here at Readings we have decided we are always going to have on the shelf because it is a story about literature. It is a story about reading. It is about who we all are. It's the reason that we're here tonight. Jane, you are so fortunate tonight because you get to ask questions of drumroll Anne Enright, who is with us here right now in Melbourne. Over to you. Well, thank you for that fantastic introduction. Uh, um, I feel very honoured and pleased uh, to to hear that. And I'm also really thrilled to be here to be talking to Anne. Anne Enright is one of my heroes and and has been for many years. 
Uh, she is, I'm sure, as you know, she's been described as a great Irish writer. She's been described as a great feminist writer. And I'm just going to go ahead and call her a great writer, full stop. That sounds, sounds fine to me. She's written six novels, two story collections, and one book of nonfiction, Making Babies. And she's won many awards. And the best known is probably the 2007 Man Booker Award, which she won for her novel, The Gathering. This is the vintage edition, which uh, should be in all good bookshops, I hope. And uh, another well-known book of hers I've, I've got is um, The Green Road. Uh, again, I think a, a, a very impressive novel. But the one that we're going to talk about most tonight is Actress, which is her latest book. Um, I'll just say a few more things about Anne before we begin. Um, she was appointed the first laureate for Irish fiction in 2015, and she's also received the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature. And I was looking through all the quotes and reviewers to describe her, and the one that I like particularly is says that she has a huge, dazzling, unnerving ability to observe, catch the telling detail, and dissect what we are like. So, Anne, welcome to Melbourne, albeit via Zoom, the magic of Zoom. Lovely praise, set my morning, you know, ticking. Oh, that's, that's good. Good evening over here, but that's fine. Um, can we begin perhaps with a little reading from Actress, just so uh, we get the flavour of the book? Okay. This is based on... This is based on the photograph that made it onto the cover of the book. When I'm working, I, I often just uh, grab a couple of images like, you know, the wallpaper or the rosary beads or whatever it is I'm writing about. And one of the images I, I was looking for uh, at when I was looking at stage mothers was this picture of Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. I didn't see that. There's a, an amazing documentary about the pair of them. They lived in a compound side by side until they and they died days apart a couple of years ago and uh, there is a fantastic documentary about them which I had not seen when I when I wrote this this book among the images of my mother that exist online is a black and white photograph of me watching her from the wings I am four or five years of age and sitting on a stool in a little matinee coat and a bowl haircut beyond me Catherine O'Dell performs to the unseen crowd She's dressed in a glittering dark gown. You cannot see the edges of her or the shape her figure makes, just the slice of cheekbone and the line of her chin. Her hands are uplifted. I don't remember the photograph being taken, but I do remember the occasion. It was at the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin, and my mother was part of a gala evening in which she sang a medley of Irish songs, things like Kitty of Coleraine or Galway Bay. If you ever go across the sea to Ireland, she sang, even though she was actually in Ireland at the time. No one seemed to care about that. After Hollywood, she was all about emigrant nostalgia. She could miss the old sod while standing in her own kitchen, she used to say, and indeed she often did. The shiver of delight I felt on hearing my mother sing was always close to embarrassment. And the sight of her on a real public stage stilled me absolutely. I was transfixed. Watching her made me feel so lucky and so alone. But I was in the wings, which is the best place because the song cannot get you there. From the side, 
the stage shows its gaffer tape and the unpainted backs of things. The discovery of this makeshift reality was more magical to me than anything I saw while sitting out front. So in the photograph, it is true, my mother in her sparkly dress looks very magical indeed. They might as well go chasing after moonbeams or catch or light a penny candle from a star. And though the picture is in black and white, I remember my clothes in Kodachrome red and dark green, a little silk dress and a wool coat with its velvet collar. And I remember the fuss of that evening going out before Christmas to see my mama sing. I don't know whether I went back to the dressing room, who took me there or brought me home, but I do remember and vividly the wind of her coming off stage. She swept past me, her hand reaching blind into the darkness. Then she stopped and turned. Oh, there you are. She bent over to kiss me and it lifted from her like fresh air after a walk, a mix of nervous sweat and electricity. She was crackling with the attention of the crowd and still they clapped. How was that, she said. Was that all right? Yes. I would like to note here that a grown woman asked a five-year-old girl to tell her that her performance was not a disaster, to reassure her and to praise. I know this is true because she always did it. And I said famously, I thought you were an angel. I thought I was dead and gone to heaven. She loved this, of course, and told the story often, though she left out the bit about my being dead. The sparkles on her gown were, in fact, plastic bits stuck on flesh-coloured net that creased as she bent over me like a second loose skin. The cut of the dress exposed interesting parts of her body, like the sinewy underarm that shifted from hollow to mound when she went back out there and waved. Then she returned from the light back to me. But if there is a moment I loved more than any other, it was those steps we took together into the darkness and complication of backstage, the hum of the audience thinning behind us as the hall emptied and the crowd splintered into the various bright faces of people who came around the long way to kiss and exclaim that she had been marvellous, darling. It was a place of secret corridors and blind ends. There was a sudden or hidden door which revealed when you opened it your own reflection in the full-length mirror on the opposite wall. This room had a bicycle in the corner, a double sink, bunches of flowers stuffed into jars, a long counter where a woman sat fixing a fan of green feathers into her hair. Or sometimes it was not a woman. It was a girl with a pot tummy and white tights and tutu. It was a man who said, don't mind me, ladies, coming through. At the end of this room, behind another door, my mother's street shoes were primly stacked and waiting beneath her bentwood chair. Backstage was the best place where everything was mixed up and undone. There you go. Fantastic. And so, so well read, may I say. Just, just, just the magic, the magic and wonder of the theatre and just a wee little bit of tawdriness too. It's just oh, yeah, bit, a, a little bit of tacky there. The second skin, uh, not great. You know what I mean? It's kind of disgusting. It's a bit like when the when the thing becomes real and is kind of shared at the same time. Yeah, and that, that gaffer tape on the back of the scenery and everything. Yeah, oh, it uh, gives you the shivers. Now, uh, we better get one thing out of the way straight away. This is not an autobiographical novel. You did not have a famous actress mother, just in case anybody is wondering. Um, but you no. will trust yourself for a while, won't you? Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Well, I, 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 you know, when um, there's a, a, a actress is often said in inverted commas, you know, because it usually means unemployed, and um, because ninety five percent of actors are unemployed, and indeed, I did work as an actor and uh, um, for a little while, for two and a half seconds back in the day. Um, I worked a lot in theatre at college, and then at various little companies that were set up after college. Some of which are still going. They've, Mm-hmm. And I still dream about a particular stage, not the side of it, but you would go in, in Players Theatre in Trinity College, Dublin, where I where I went to college. There was a stage, it was such mess that the students maintained. And you would go under the stage to make your entrance on the other side or a trapdoor in the middle. And this under the stage was, must, you know, kip. It was full of everything, uh, all kind of sprayed gold and mixed up together. And also, you know, an occasional kind of little rat on the stairs as you're going up in your fancy costume. There'd be, you'd have a little encounter with a rodent. So I still dream of that. That I still dream that that play, or I haven't in a while, mm, but that place goes on and on. And of course it is kind of Jungian unconscious, you know. That's, yeah, uh, that's yeah. So it, it, it's sort of in there in the subconscious somewhere and coming out and when you when you write about uh, Catherine O'Dell, your... Your, um, yes, it's not an autobiography, and it and and I didn't. My mother is not an actress, and I made it up for fun, as as fiction writers do. Yeah, yes. um, and you, you you must have done a bit of research into the old touring world. That's when Catherine is a little girl, and she's at, she's appearing with her dad on stage, but she's also doing a lot of dog's body work behind stage when they're touring around Ireland. That was one of the, my favourite parts of the book. There's this wonderful description. It was all built out of cardboard, grease paint and panic, bad acoustics, bad corsets and the wrong shoes, that heap of junk they drove night after night over an Irish country moon. I, the, the, I just love those, those lines. But the, the guy who was the actor um, manager of, of this show and, and you, McMaster, he was a real person, wasn't he? He was. I mixed, I kind of gleefully mixed up in the pudding of the book um, bits of real and bits of made up. Mm-hmm. Annie McMaster was uh, one of the grand old style actors um, who uh, they toured between England and Ireland. Uh, the, uh, and that's another thing I liked about this idea of a tribe of actors is that they don't really have a nationality. They just go wherever they wherever they can get a stage or wherever they can get an audience. But it seems like there's a lot of research in the book, but actually I kind of knew an awful lot of it already. I put Anya McMaster into a previous book because I've always been interested in two actors called Michal McLeamore and Hilton Edwards, um, who, who uh, and some of the actors I know now toured with them and, uh, and, 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 and knew them back in the day. And they were kind of completely made up. They made themselves up. Michal McLeamore was born in, in, in England. He came over. They were the Ireland's only gay couple. Everyone knew they were gay. And that was fine because they were actors. And, and, and Michal McLeamore learned Irish, which is a very difficult language to, to, to acquire, and <laughs> pretended to be Irish all his life. He was also bald and he wore a wig. And then on top of that, he wore a bald cap when he was performing, you know, uh, bald. And then... One heroic day in RTE, it was said there was a wig was put on top of the ball cap. He had a triple decker. I worked in television as well. So these little anecdotes, these little gossipy things. I'm a, I'm a, I think my mother saw Annie McMaster at, at one stage, mm-hmm. saw his Othello. Um, 
So, I, you know, it's just so yeah. much part of where I've been that I didn't really, you know, I did some official research, but I was really amazed at how much was all there in the back of my head already. And uh, so Kat- Catherine has this early start in, in this chaotic rumbunctious theatre life, and then she goes on to quite early success in Hollywood, uh, and she becomes a film star, and she has that Hollywood marriage to, that, to um, a man who's actually gay, and the marriage doesn't last very long. And and all the time there's this mystery, isn't there, that who is this woman really? She's very, very close to her daughter, but there's there's a mystery about, particularly about who, who the daughter's father is, and, and she never explains. So this, I was intrigued that there's this combination of a very close, intimate, loving relationship between the mother and the daughter, but there's also a kind of distance because so many things are not explained. And yeah, there's a kind of relentless uh, search for the facts. Okay, mm-hmm. she's writing a memoir. She's gonna she's gonna write down all the facts because that's what the world needs. That's what that's what's required. That's the official version. Mm-hmm. So she's gonna detail as much of her mother's life as possible. This is a kind of failed enterprise mm. because she doesn't perhaps actually want to give the world her mother, <laughs> nor does she know how that might be done. You know, there's a kind of possessiveness there in 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 the love between them, and there and that kind of feeling of secrecy is part of our kind of idea of where do we come from is always a bit of a secret, isn't it? When you're a child. Um, so that's just that kind of enlarged, I suppose, or maintained. There is no, I just realised I'm writing the same book again. I have another fatherless child in the next book. And, um, and that's, sorry, that's always annoying when you realise you've just done it again. So, um, but I'm quite interested in the, in you know, when I was a, when I was at college, people would talk about female archetypes, you know, the Madonna, the whore, it was all kind of, and I'm quite interested in how women stylize men, actually. So there are a series of archetypal men in the book, um, you know, villains and heroes and all that, you know, that she imagines her father might be. So you take this absent father and he turns into any man. And any man is a very varied sort of creature. And so she goes through all the, all, all the styles of, of, and cliches of masculinity that, you know, her father. She ends well on the, on the man front. Uh, and the other mystery about Catherine is that um, there's that she commits this shocking crime, which I don't know if we want to tell people what it is, do we? No, she goes mad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, she commits this crime, but we don't know why. And again, this is something that Nora's trying yeah. to yeah, and she goes. The thing is, yeah. Now, I mean, I could have written it as a more uh, as a more straightforward book. Okay, <laughs> I could have done that. <laughs> Damn, a, however, it's interesting when it's not straightforward. I, yeah, exactly. I, I want the book to be a little bit like life, where you don't exactly when, when there's sometimes too many reasons, and and not, not one of them is sufficient. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? You say, well, why did they go off? Why did they, why, why did he go down to the shops to buy cigarettes and never come back? Okay. <laughs> you know, some large event that, that like that. You say, well, there's too many reasons and none of them are enough. Mm. In fact, Catherine is vengeful in a way that most women are not. And if you, if you look at what is done to women as a gender, you can think, well, we're very nice in return. <laughs> it's, it's, there isn't a big problem of men being killed by women, okay? There isn't a big problem. And you think, well, 
not that there should be. Of course there shouldn't. That would be a wrong thing. But 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 why is so little revenge executed by women? It's kind of a little thread now in the Hollywood movies coming through now at the minute. But why why? And actually. I stumbled across a kind of horrible little website uh, of starlets and what became of uh, who all went mad. And a surprising number of them. And it was full of kind of look at these beautiful, beautiful bodies of women and they all went mad. Okay, that, that was kind of. Were they internalizing their rage? These women who went mad? Who went mad? Well, you know, a proportion of the population will always have difficulties. Mm. I think. Uh, uh, Hollywood is a bit of a, a madness machine. You know, it's already got fantasy built into it. So that, that you know, it's not necessarily tethered in reality. But, uh, and I think it's very possible that some of them had a very bad time in Hollywood. But also they were beautiful and they were entitled in a way that your average uh, woman was not because they were stars or they were about to be stars or they were glamorized in some way. So they felt as though they could go about sort of exacting revenge. Yeah. There was a woman called Constance Smith, who is a lit, an actress from Limerick. They used to win competitions. She won a beauty competition run by a local soap company. And she went to Hollywood. She was an utterly beautiful woman. And she stabbed the man she subsequently married in, in 1962. You wonder what happened to these beautiful women yeah. who were very, very close to... Uh, uh, being often sexually exploited. Yeah, and I have to say that um, the men on the whole don't come out of this sport very well, with the, with the exception of, of um, Nora's husband, who seems like a, a good bloke. Um, but there's a lot of sexual abuse, coercion, violence, sadism, and you say somewhere that men needed to possess or stain Catherine because of her talent, which was an interesting take on, on um, you know, the, 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 the heroine, the, the star, who has to be taken down in some way, even in the yeah. Yeah, she's interested in her, and Nora's interested in her own sadism, apart from anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of narcissistic world, okay? So it's prone to envy and to those those chilly moments of sadism. Um, I'm coming to the closer to the idea that misogyny is actually a kind of envy, is <laughs> a narcissistic emotion, you know, that very toxic, unpleasant mm-hmm. thing. Uh, that we all recognise, um, that isn't quite about, you know, salaries or something. It's just that extra thing that's so mm. horrible. So, um, yes, what, what what Nora says in the book is that they wanted, they were jealous of her talent or they wanted to take her, ta- her it was something about goodness. It was something about beauty and something about that wonderful flow uh, that comes from, a woman like Catherine O'Dell, and they wanted to spoil that. Yeah. I should anyway. say that we're making it sound very grim, but this is also a very charming and funny and delightful book as well, as well as the dark. there's a dark side, but there's also a, a very magic side, magical side to this book. I just want to um, divert a little bit here, Anne, and ask you about your time when you, when you became the, the laureate 
And uh, I read that um, London Review of Books essay you wrote um, where you were you were having a go at male writers, really, weren't you, as opposed to female writers, or at least the way that they're treated. Irish in particular, <laughs> I guess you could apply it to other countries too. Do you think things have changed since then or are we still in a kind of misogynist world in literature? You know, I really, you know, I I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, 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 I was interested in how men manage to admire each other and, and somehow that that's kind of spiral of admiration. I ran a lot of statistical analysis of, of who reviewed what in the Irish newspapers. It's just a cultural thing. Ireland is so busy being Irish that we forgot about feminism, perhaps. You know, we also were in... We didn't have divorce. We didn't have abortion. Contraception was illegal when I was growing up. So you think about all of those things. You say, well, of course, books are kind of... La- but anyway, we thought we were through all of that. And then you find that it just... If you don't tend that garden, the weeds are all male, okay? If you don't, it's just taken over. Just If you don't keep watching it, the male... The, 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 that, and I was interested in how how that tilt towards the male is maintained. Um, and, and one of the ways is that, for example, women will very cheerfully uh, read m- books by men and by women. Men find it difficult sometimes to read books by women. And you wonder, what's going to happen to them if they read a book by a woman? What, 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 what's the threat or what's the void? What's the failure in the book by a woman that, that, that can't take their attention? What is it about a female voice that that makes them temporarily deaf? But when you say, does that misogyny continue? I mean, I think that that's a kind of communal cultural group thing. And I think that the cultures vary from place to place. I do think Australia has its own culture of masculinity, uh, which is different to the Irish uh, uh, how, how 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 Irish masculinity rolls, mm. but Irish masculinity can be, you know, the, a lyrical poetic tradition, <laughs> the softest, you know, nicest thing that you could imagine. I but remember you mentioned that um, poster that that came out of um, our Irish writers, twelve Irish writers. And uh, I think it was um, your your fellow writer John Boyne who pointed out that that uh, there was not a vagina between them; they were all men. <laughs> they were all men, and they 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 the, that's the that's the marketing of the Irish writer by the Irish tourist industry, which was and and the myth of the Irish writer was very much a, you know around the pub and and involved ideas of dissent and wildness. Yeah. Um, but I see that they've now that the Irish Times put out another poster of all women writers, including yourself. So that, that yeah, but that bores me into like a total state of apathy. <laughs> <laughs> just you know, it's just like give it up. I mean, the the thing you know, basically, what I would like is for there to be less talk about gender, one way or the other, yeah. in the world. And 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 the and the the counter to an all-male poster isn't an all-female poster. It's just... Well, maybe maybe we could just sort of let it go for a while, but we'll still have to do a bit of weeding, I guess. <laughs> Believe me, I'm glad I stumbled on this weeding thing. It's summer here and, and I, I'm gardening. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm glad I have that new image now. I'll use it again. Oh, that's a good one. Um, Nora, in your book, 
actress um, is a writer and she's uh, there's one stage where she looks at her five novels about life and love and she says, I hear them each as a fading note. Together they make a kind of fugitive <laughs> and beautiful, but they are the lie I need to tell. And so I read that and I thought, well, what does Anne Enright think when she sees her novel sitting on the shelf? What do I think? To know. <laughs> I think I wish I wasn't writing the same book again this time, I tell you that much. I, can't, I don't know what I think. That's a very good question. You know, there are writers, it's, it's like, you know, I have students in creative writing and I, and I say what you think about your work is completely irrelevant. It remains the same on the page. Okay, so you write something, you think that's the greatest thing that was ever written. And then two minutes later, you read it again and say, oh my God, that's so bad. Okay. And yes. then you throw it away, you put it in a cupboard, you leave it, you stumble across it a decade later and you read it and say, I used to be able to write. <laughs> Why can't I do that anymore? So... <laughs> Your emotion about what's on the page is largely irrelevant. I mean, they, they come and go. Well, but we might style it as confidence issues or, you know, issues of self-esteem or whatever. But actually, it's more about what you produce, you know, mm -hmm. and how you feel about what you produce. Do you think it's wonderful? Do you think it's terrible? Do you think maybe it's something in between? I don't know. What, I, I don't know. I think cumulatively... I did find myself muttering crossly about something, saying, I've written, I've written loads of books, I've written 12 books or whatever. I, 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 I didn't used to count. Uh, now, there's apparently a few questions that come up from the audience um, asking what do you think about the current crop of, of um, women writers in Ireland who are becoming well-known, um, people like um, Sally Rooney and Amar McBride and a number of others. What's your feeling about them? Yeah, I, I'm actually I, I'm delighted to see it. Anna Burns is another uh, wonderful writer. Um, uh, and it, the thing about the, those, those three names, Sally and Emer and, and Anna Burns, is that you wouldn't mistake one for the other. It's really interesting. People think of a tradition as a kind of accent or a tone of voice. But in fact, every writer worth their salt is a different, is a different, is a, has a really kind of tradition of their own almost, a voice of their own. So, yeah, I, I um, uh, have reviewed I was very, <laughs> I'm very happy to review people like Emer, her first book, I reviewed it in The Guardian, and Sally Rooney, I read it, reviewed it in The Irish Times, because I know that there's going to be, uh, a, 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 you know, first of all, there was no one around when I started writing to, to say nice things about women writers, okay? <laughs> and I know there's going to be some kind of, there's going to be a lot of envy and there's going to be a lot of backlash, you know? I mean, I remember listening to an Oxford pro professor opining that Sally Rooney was was probably chick lit. And he hadn't read it. Oh. <laughs> he, just kind of, he just heard somebody else say that. And I was thinking, oh my God, is this 1854? You know, so, so I, I have tried to, Anyway, it doesn't, I say I put a bulwark up against all of this, but it doesn't matter because those books just go and go. They do their own thing um, and they can't be gainsaid, which is kind of wonderful. Yeah. Um, I, I read a, a little thing that you, you wrote about um, a, a, the worst introduction for an Irish male academic. A close one race, definitively won by a distinguished professor who was so drunk as to be incomprehensible, except for the phrase, we must forgive her for writing well. <laughs> 
Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, I still don't know what they're, I still don't know what's going on in their pretty little heads, really. Now, I've got another question from Christine. Yeah, what Anne thinks will happen to Irish writing as Catholicism and the humour associated with it recedes. Is it receding? I suppose we have to ask first. Catholicism and the and the which? And the humour associated with it. Yeah, a lot of nostalgia for Ireland is, uh, uh, for, for an Ireland past, to me, which has existed all my life, we've always been, it's always in a permanent state of loss that we'll never be as good again as we were then. But it's it's a nostalgia for poverty a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, a lot of that yearning for stony fields is, yearn, is, is, is yearning for a place that isn't going to put your children through college. Uh, I, I, during the boom, I was asked a lot whether it was going to destroy Irish writing. And the answer was no, because I didn't think you had to be poor in order to be interesting or poor in order to be nice or poor, in a, you know, whatever, whatever people think Irish people are. However, when the collapse came at the end in 2008, 2009, a new breed of writers was spawned. I want to say <laughs> they were ever, ever. No one had a job. They all went. They all lost their jobs and went home and wrote a book, which is what happens when people lose their job in Ireland. And uh, and so it, so difficulty was very fruitful. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's an anti-Catholic thing, really. I, th- I, I mean, I think James, James Joyce was an anti-Catholic writer. And yeah. I don't know whether I need to be an anti-Catholic writer. In fact, I never bothered being an anti-Catholic writer. There's very little specifically about Catholicism in even, even The Gathering in 2007. Oh, that's true. There isn't a lot. Um, yeah, I just thought that the church was, it, it was in, uh, I'm not interested in blasphemy. I find it intellectually sort of silly. And sort of kicking the... Catholic Church to me would be like kicking a bus. It was just kind of useless <laughs> and not very, it didn't bring you further on. Um, the other thing that people associate with Ireland, I suppose rightly or wrongly, is the Troubles. And uh, there's an interesting little um, uh, aside on that in Actress in that, that, that Catherine um, is a, a sort of IRA supporter. She sort of flirts with them. The, um... There's a lot of stories in the book, right? And one of the stories is the story of romantic Irish nationalism, which Catherine goes for hook, line and sinker because that's everything she is, is, you know, I mean, it's all made up. She dyed her hair in a sink in New York in, in, the, in, 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 in the early 50s and became the Irish actress. Um, but part of that fiction was the romantic fiction of of uh, a united Ireland that that fed into the republican movement and that turned into the violence from 1969 onwards mm. in Ireland. So it's more or less accurate to some of the events of the time, I have to say, and some of the characters involved. Um, and and I in the book say there is a, a moment when life is too real this kind of fictionalizing a bomb is one of those instances mm. where the where reality really really makes itself known mm. and in the in the constant sexual fantasizing of, uh, of and stories of hollywood and that we get day in day out in our normal lives the place where that becomes too real is of course in the bodies of others in actual sex you might say so the bomb, the bomb that explodes in the book in Dublin, nineteen seventy-four. This also is an event that destroys the bodies of other people, and that's for me is where you have to stop. You have to you have to get out of 
story town, you know, it's not in your head, it's in the world, it's in other people's lives. Yeah, throughout the book, there are cases where real life intrudes and, and you use real events and real people who pop in and do little cameos like Ivan Novello or whatever, which gives it a real yes. feeling of authenticity, I think. And you're never quite sure whether something really happened or not, you know, at least I had that feeling reading it. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you this, um, Anne, because I'm sure you get asked this all the time. It's a bit tedious, but um, pandemic, how has that disrupted life? Did that mean the actress tour was completely desolate? Oh, yeah. No, there's a line in the the book where she comes back um, like to Ireland, like a bird flying into a windowpane, you know, and um, actually that is how I felt. (laughs) It was like throwing the book into a into a propeller or something like it was like throwing a book into the world and it just went <laughs> turned into confetti spaghetti. Yeah. So yeah, it was quite traumatizing. And then a few months later, you realize that the book is kind of bobbing along, you know, that it hasn't been quite sunk. So again, it's just, I don't know whether I enjoyed any of it, but I did find it really interesting how future-minded I was and am when I write books. Mm-hmm. That when I was spent two or three years writing this book, I was thinking, this will do something, this will, you know, it was all about the future. And the future just disappeared. Um, so now when I'm working, I am really try to go with some effort to be more focused on the present. And it's actually a better, a better way to live, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't need you don't need these moral lessons, really. We got some questions about your writing process, and uh, I looked up uh, a little bit. You said about planning, and you said I don't really plan a book from the outside. I don't know where the middle is until I've done quite a lot of writing. The structure announces itself quite late in the process for me. It takes me a year or more to realise what my structure is and therefore what the story is, and I'm addicted to the surprises that sentences can bring. So it sounds like you like you, you like to be surprised as you're working. Well, yes. Um, I do know some very effective writers who know everything before they sit down, uh, or very successful writers, put it that way. But I do find myself getting bored by a book that knows what it is before it's begun. <laughs> because if you know, do you know what I mean? Why bother? Yeah. If you know, you know, kind of the, I like the imagining to happen in the language. Um, and I like the, the language to drive or to lead me one way or the other. Um, but it's a hard, it's a tough way to work. And I wouldn't recommend it to students necessarily. I, I, I do think there's a, a, a structural moment where you realize what the book is. And, the, and that's when you realize how it should be structured. Mm. So, um, and that comes can come quite late. Yeah. Did it come late with actress? Came quite late with the Green Road, where I realised that each of the that each of the siblings in that book had to have their own story and their own style. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I tend to write books that are uh, that go into that change into another book in the middle. <laughs> so this changed into the daughter's book in the middle. And you know, I would be a much more kind of cheerfully successful writer if I didn't do that but I want the book to achieve itself somehow I want it to shift I want to I I want I want it to to go where it needs to go um and then the daughter takes over the story in 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 the book she becomes her mother's minder uh but she also she also kind of 
supplants her one way or the other. She she outgrows her childhood. And she has this wonderful sardonic, um, but also compassionate voice, I think. And, and um, I, do, I don't want to give the end of the story away, but I, it does end on a more hopeful note, I think. Do, do you think that? Yeah, I, what I'm aiming for as I write is that sense of dawn at the end of the, at mm. the, end of the, mm. uh, the book. Yeah, Nora's kind of sorted and she's the least sort of cross of all my narrators. She's very kind of, she's, she's always, she was always a sturdy girl. She always yeah. could sort things out for her mother. She was, the you know, she minded and managed her mother. And she's got a pretty good marriage, hasn't she? It's lasted a long time. It's had its ups and downs, but it's... Going, going along all right. I think it has its ups and downs simultaneously and all the time. Do you know? Mm-hmm. That she, that I, I, it took me a good while. I was very interested in writing about monogamy because no one, mm-hmm. no one does that, and no. many people experience it. <laughs> it's like so. I mean, who's going to read a book about monogamy? They say, "Oh, I can get that at home." Uh, that's not what I'm reading a book for. I'm, I'm reading a book for excitement and otherness. Anyway, so I thought it was kind of a challenge to see what the tensions with what are the sustaining or tensions within a changing relationship? Mm. Or I think that's not what I thought. I thought I'm going to build up to a point where I can write, where I can write this relationship, which is a shifting, and not a not a kind of. I was going to say romantic, but it has a lot going on. There's a lot of irritation along with with the, uh, uh, attraction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anne, I, I could go on happily talking to you all night and listening to what you have to say, but I think we're running a little low on time. And um, so, Christine, I don't know if you want to hand over here now, but I just I was say, is that my old pal Verity there in the in the in the audience? Never said no, have you? Ah, oh. I don't know. Is it Verity that I knew at school? Is it? Can we can we find out? I don't know. Let me find out for you. But. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to uh, ask before we went, because I now have to, because I'm a, a bookseller, I have to ask you what you're reading at the moment. Yeah, I'm actually reading the selected John Cheever stories oh. introduced by oh. Julian Barnes, which I'm supposed to be reviewing. Are you enjoying it? Well, I haven't read John Cheever since I was in my early 20s. So I just, I mean, the, and of course the introduction is elegantly proposed and everything. Cheever's really interesting. He's an outrageous sort of character. He was drunk all the time and he hated everybody. And um, and we have run out of time, but I do have a lovely me- message from uh, Verity. It is your old friend Verity and she's delighted to see you in person. And she did say, and perhaps this is something for all of us, she did say, aren't we growing up now? <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> Literally the most perfect phase to finish on. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Uh, everybody that has joined us tonight, we have been so honoured to have Anne Enright from across the seas joining us. Uh, can we all just quote her over the next weeks, over the next dinner parties, at the next barbecues, when she says, Speak for yourself. But please, my friends, do go out there and read her books. They will make you. Dare I say, they will make you a, a, a person filled with more empathy. They will make you a better person. These stories are are your stories. To you, Jane, thank you so much for asking the questions, uh, for being able to draw on different essays that Anne had written. I so, so appreciate it. And to all of you out there, go well, my friends, and uh, do keep reading. And know that here in Melbourne, you are so loved. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great start to my day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this episode was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>